You're listening to The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge is an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor and trader with decades of experience in markets, and me, Daniel Schwarzman, who has been focused on the market as a career for the past decade. We take investing ideas or themes we're interested in and break them down, or we speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. You can also check out our work on Seeking Alpha under our respective names, or reach us on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to the given episode. We're in earnings season, which is always busy, but this quarter has an extra kick. It's the first lapping full COVID comps, which means we can start to see what the wonky pull forward or shutdown effects of a year ago due to a company's reports today and how the market responds. Today on The Razor's Edge, we break down two regularly covered names, Netflix and Twitter. On one hand, they had sort of opposite quarters. Netflix suffered from a post-COVID hangover in their subscriber numbers, which will likely lead revenue numbers. While Twitter posted a huge revenue beat compared to a pandemic crimped Q2 2020. Look a little closer, and there are similarities between the two companies' positions and how they look going forward. For those of you looking to tune into one or the other conversation, we talked Netflix for about 42 minutes and then moved to Twitter. You can see the exact timestamps in our show notes. Disclosures, Akram is long Twitter. I don't have any positions in any of these names, but we'll have another close look and may open a position in coming days in either Twitter or Netflix. And as always, nothing on here is investment advice. And it's not quite a spoiler, but I share an opinion about the new Ted Lasso season, the first episode, about 35 minutes in, just in case you want a wholly unbiased experience of the show when you watch. Okay. Akram, as you put it, a couple of our favorites reported earnings last week, and I think before we get into those names, this is this should be where we start to see the whole COVID, post-COVID, comps, dynamics kind of skewing things. And I think that sort of plays out in both of these cases. So we've got Netflix on the streaming side, the streaming giant, Twitter, the social media rising star, but amidst of competitive environment. Which company do you want to start with, or do you want to kind of point out what you think is similar? Where do you want to where do you want to kick this off? I mean, you tell me what what do you what do you feel like starting with? Let's start with Netflix because I think that's to me, and we'll get back to Twitter. To me, Twitter, there's a little bit more of a consensus around the quarter from my sense. Whereas Netflix, I think my takeaway was I believe their subscriber numbers, both this quarter and going forward, guidance were underwhelming. The obvious counter is that, yeah, they added 
they had a huge 2020. So of course there was some pull forward effect. And the way I understood your thesis, I know you weren't, you kind of got out of the name, but the way I understood your take on it going into the beginning of the year after the Q4 report was basically subscriber growth is going to be increasingly less of a story. ARPU growth is going to be increasingly more of a story. So yeah, I, I think Netflix is the one that to me, there's a little bit more of a bone to pick among people. And so I'm curious what your takeaway was from their quarter. Yeah, I guess it's, I mean, every time this thing reports, look, there's, there's a cadre of Netflix bears. I think most of them are very smart guys who I still think they have a bit of like tunnel vision when it comes to this name because they kind of been in the bearish camp on it. So whenever it reports, there's like a narrative that like this, we, we, we have the same type of conversation over and over again. It's like, is, uh, do they have franchise IP content costs not coming down? When will they generate significant, meaningful free cash flow terminal year, ARPU assumptions are too high up your value in the stock. It's more penetrated than you realize so on and so forth. And now adding on top of that is the, the announcing that they're doing video gaming because they need some sort of new driver for the stock. It essentially, it's more of a distraction than a genuine catalyst type of thing. So like, yeah, I mean, like you're running the gamut now. I mean, this is where you get into what were expectations, right? So like Netflix stock, I commented on this last week, is up roughly... 25%, a little 25 to 30% over three years, like essentially like one third the performance of the QQQ. Right. I think Netflix hit like 400 in the, in the summer of summer of 18. And we're at about 500. And QQQs are up, you know, like 100% in that time period. And if you push it forward, I mean, there was somebody on Twitter was like, well, you know, Netflix is up a lot more since the end of 18. Well, I mean, the point I was, I was actually making that to defend Netflix and in a sense of like, look, you can call this digestion. You can call this whatever growing into its multiple. I mean, it's always a combination of those two things, right? When you're like, we're the best performing stock in the market for the previous seven years. But in their case, I think that either way, it's undeniable that the multiple has compressed. I mean, like, you kind of were just at that point in Facebook recently, you know, let's call it before this like recent surge, but even that like six months ago, just like, you know, a fast grower who started out with a really high multiple that's growing their multiple and then like kind of hit a period where there's been less enthusiasm. Now in Netflix's case, it's kind of weird. And we were kind of having this conversation on spaces the other day about maybe like was COVID good or bad for them? Like the common sense you know, knee-jerk response is COVID was good for Netflix because, well, I mean, everybody stays at home and streams. Like the more nuanced, let's say now, we could even say like more obvious take, if you want to say is it was bad for them because, well, it shut down the movie theaters, it forced everybody alternatively to compete against them. It brought more attention to everything else, stay at home. It amped up everybody else in social media to start competing more on more avenues and things like audio. 
and even to a degree more video. So like you, you can make the argument that, you know, where Netflix sat as home streaming entertainment king, you know, it ran into, you know, you had the clubhouses and the Spotify's and the podcasts and everything else that kind of got the COVID boost and all their competition in, in TV and linear, or if you want to call it TV, linear, whatever, as well as uh, the box office, let's just call it traditional media, you know, I had to go, like, had to explore DTC, bring their content DTC. So, like, they're actually competing against the box office at home. Like, that was also kind of, like, another thing. So, you're, like, you're essentially competing against a lot of things, and you accelerated a lot of competitions, you know, timelines for what they were going to do. It sounds to me like Slack's conundrum last year as well, except... Oh, in- that's a fucking good way of looking at it, dude. Nice nice observation. In Slack's <laughs> case, it was just Microsoft that really was competing with them. I mean, whatever, you can say Zoom or whatever, but... Yeah, it's like you're better. And, and then... Yeah, it forced every... Right, and then there's Disney. I mean, Disney was going that way, but nevertheless, and, you know, Loeb jumped in and all those... We've talked about that at length, and... Roku's trying to get into into, into script. Yeah, Roku content. buys Quibi. Yeah, I mean everybody makes moves, right? Like that were, let's just say things that maybe I mean like even AT and T, like I mean right, like they're they're merging Warner with the, with Discovery and they're exiting. They're like you accelerated everybody's kind of plans in, in the field. And I mean, I just watched my first Peacock original this weekend, Doctor Death. I mean, I've watched a couple of shows on Peacock before, but that was the first show that I couldn't watch elsewhere, but I had to watch on their streaming. And I don't know, like somewhere I, I hit an ad and I saw that Kristen Slater and uh, Baldwin. And I was like, huh, what is this? And then I didn't even know the guy's story. And then, like, by the time it was done, I was reading the, you know, appeals circuit on Dr. Dunch. In this case. Is that, I think that's a podcast adaptation too. There's a podcast adaptation. That's what yeah. it is. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I got into the whole backstory. I've discovered tort reform in Texas went a lot further than, than I realized. Uh, it's actually very fascinating, a bunch of stuff. But yeah, I mean, not to get off topic, I think Netflix is quarter, like this is where you get into these names. Like you started out here with the post COVID, like how do you measure them? So, you know, net ads were, were 1.5 million. That's down from 10 million a year ago. So like they added 25, so they go, they added 25 million subs in the first half of 2020, which was double the cadence of 2019. So I guess the first question you got to ask yourself before anybody opens their mouth, anything about how this business is operating is like, what does pull forward do with, with COVID? Are you, are, are you dealing with a dynamic where Netflix has added I think it's uh, five and a half million global paid subs net in the first half of this year. So that's notably down from 25, but, you know, right in between kind of where you would expect them to be if you factored in a slowing cadence. Like if you added 12 in the first half, of 19, you know, where would you have thought they would be like, I think somewhere around, you know, 10 to 12, because 
they're increasingly getting more penetrated. I mean, I think ARPU is is, is, is a more interesting debate for them than at least in the Western world. Now, what's going on? And that, that actually kind of raises an interesting question because we had been talking about this before last quarter and like that, like I can't look at Netflix here. What was interesting about this quarter for some people is that like, you know, they, if you're bearish on the name, they lost subscribers in the US. But I mean, the general view on, on, on North America is that they're pretty deeply penetrated. So whatever they really added in five quarters of COVID, are you surprised by any churn? That you hit a quarter at some point where you'd have red? I mean, there's going to have to be a decent amount of people who were in the, in the, you know, let's call it streaming latecomers board looking for a little bit of incremental content and that like they may have come in and gone under, under COVID. And I don't think you've seen any conversation around that. And the other thing with this name is that like, it's very hard to have these conversations because it's like it's everybody who criticizes them doesn't seem to want to discuss where it trades. I mean, it's, I mean, where is it now? It's like 7.8 times this year's, you know, sorry, this year's run rate, let's call it. So let's just say that they're almost at 30 billion and like Q1, Q2 is 14.5. Let's assume that, uh, you're going to finish the year just a hair under 30. Okay. Maybe 30 exactly, depending on, I'm going to guess you're going to get a price increase in, in, in Europe and, uh, and some of these international markets before the year is out. So if that's the case, like you get your, it's a $30 billion company, you know, with about a 200 and $30 billion enterprise value, like growing its top line, what trailing rate is about 20%. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the push or what the bearish argument here is, I think, is that A, you have proof that they don't have much more profit, much more high ticket growth, that the penetration in the... But is it proof? This has been a debate. I mean, I have obviously leaned in that camp based on where we're at today. But Netflix has 200 and what, 7 million subscribers? Where are they at? 209, okay? 209 million globally. If you back out China and broadband, the addressable market based on broadband penetration per household globally is, let's call it 750 million. And let's just assume that market is also expanding as 5G adoption ramps. So places where you haven't had broadband, but you're going to have high bandwidth to make Netflix streaming capable worldwide. They, they got into this on the call. I think Spencer Newman was asked about where they are in their penetration. There's a very consensus view here. There's two things that are kind of consensual view here from a bear argument is that they're already knocking on a ceiling price-wise, and you're not going to see subscriber growth of any note. Like there's like this is where you get into this whole like one could sub growth internationally reaccelerate? That's not discounted at all. No one's thinking about that. I mean, like we're generally taking a view that they're well penetrated in the Western markets, which is fine. 
I still think that like you've got something like, you know, a few more years of 5% or so sub growth in the West. So when you consider that they grew like 8.5% net subs globally, the Western rate really this quarter was, I mean, I'm going to guess I haven't seen the exact splits, but with the North America negative and where they're at, you know, flat to negative. So, but, but like ex China, where does the content is getting in there through some partnerships, but ex China, there's potentially a TAM that's what a, a third penetrated. I mean, even with password sharing and the general assumptions, if you look at the US, you could say like 70% of, you know, let's call it 700 million or even 60%. That's they still got. 300 million subscribers out there to chase. That's question number one, <laughs> you know, I mean, is, uh, is this kind of you right now? Because they, they clearly hit some hiccups and there's, there's definitely a much more competitive environment, but is it kind of a bit absurd to assume that they're fully penetrated? Number one. Then number two is where you get into this kind of like broader assessment that, I, I mean, this kind of all started before Netflix reported there was an information article about Disney essentially being flat in the United States for sub ads in Q2. I mean, you saw HBO, and I mean, HBO is a hard one to comp because if you're an HBO subscriber, you kind of, you're, you're essentially turned on. So HBO added something like one, 1.8, 2 million or so subs. In Q2, and that's with all the Warner Media movies going day and date, and that's off a much smaller base. So, I mean, people reviewed that positively. They viewed Netflix as number negatively. If Disney is going to come out roughly flat here, Disney's ARPU is way lower, and they will have already hit a wall in the U.S. And I'm I'm a like I'm in a I'm in a camp where I'm like, who hasn't heard of Marvel yet, <laughs> right? Who hasn't heard of Star Wars? So you're at that point where it's like, hey, part of the appeal of Disney is they've got these these franchises that they can just go and milk them and milk them and milk them, right? And potentially lower overall content costs over the long term. But if there's an audience that's a fraction of what Netflix has that's not watching that content, I mean, that kind of tells you something, right? I mean, I feel like the people who spend their time debating the stock don't fall into the category of the of like watching Too Hot to Handle and Sexy Beast. I mean, at least from like a peer group where I find myself having these conversations. Because when you look at Netflix's subscribers and like you look at their content, and I was having this conversation where I was like, "Look, yes, I I watched three Disney shows, actually four. I watched some of Mighty Ducks, and." I've watched a bunch of stuff on HBO Max lately, and I had not been able to think of anything new I'd watched on Netflix in the past quarter, right? I had watched some repeats. So it was like, all right, con like the content sl slate was was stale. And like the, the general view, like that started this whole, I mean, there was a couple threads where just Netflix doesn't have IP. And it's like, well, I mean, HBO didn't have IP, <laughs> you know? Like HBO has been creating originals. Yeah, they have the uh, what what they've licensed from the studios, but like 
for film movie releases, you know, on traditional cable, but they built a brand around, you know, a handful of originals. So it's not like they, they inherited a Disney library of famous franchises. So when I look at that, I'm like, they've, they've, they've done it. Like they have it. Like, if you look at Netflix to me, they have the equivalent of an HBO in there. It's just diluted by all the other content. So when you watch like Ozarks or Black Mirror or these shows that I would say have like are analogous to what you as an HBO subscriber would be watching. I mean, they haven't really come up with their, their equivalent of like a succession or a billions or whatever yet, but. Well, they, you could argue House of Cards was there, but. Yeah, I mean, like that was kind of their broad reach into that space and it worked for, a few, for let's call it, you know, what, four or five years. But I'm just saying like, they have, like, look, they have the crown, they have, what should they have? They have so many different things, right? Stranger things. But when you look at it of like a, a focus, when I go to HBO, it's like kind of a focused bunch of content that like, I'm never going to HBO and thinking, oh, there's nothing to watch here. I'm going to HBO being like, there's these like three or four shows. And because HBO spreads them out and releases it one episode at a time, like they don't create this, this, I mean, I don't know what you want to call it, perception of a, of a lack of content. But that's why I think it's funny when Netflix gets that, because it's like Netflix is like, like my nephews watch Floor is Lava. I mean, it's, to me, it's like one of the dumbest shows ever. And I don't get how even 10-year-olds would be interested in it. <laughs> so like, they have a bunch of content that covers all kinds of audiences. And that's where you can kind of, you could have a conversation around like, is this optimal content spend to chase these audiences worth it? Or is it better being HBO? Is it better well, running a business that like is, is reinforcing content for, let's call it, you know, 35 million people? There's two things there that are interesting to me. First is that HBO, the merger with Discovery is in a way, I mean, Discovery is a giant in that sort of reality space, right? And so that's sort of an interesting matching where HBO is now going back to playing Netflix's game through that merger. And then the other thing that's interesting, I think I was trying to pull it up but Netflix is going back to licensing, which I'm curious about the play from Comcast's perspective. They're licensing Friday Night Lights again, and I feel like they've got another. What Thirty Rock is coming? I Netflix. thought it was Thirty Rock. I didn't. I just googled yeah. and couldn't. Yeah. So Jack Donahue, Liz Lemon. Those are sort of. That's an interesting sort of. I mean, Netflix is big for that sort of. I know they lost The Office, but that sort of filling content from the back, even with all this new stuff and with all the reality and everything else. I just thought that was an interesting development in the recent weeks as well. So like that's where watching old episodes of the very familiar stuff works in. If you have not committed to buying into a new show, like Glow, for example, was a show that would have been on HBO. Okay, I watched that on, on, on Netflix. I don't really think that got much coverage. Yeah, right. it's a tiny bit. Of, yeah, I don't think it was huge. And it, to me, it was a fantastically well-made show. So it's not like when people, when I, when I see criticism, like, well, they don't know how to do this. And like, they're, 
they're really inefficient. It's it's like, well, I mean, I don't know if those arguments really hold. Like if you're going to be if you're going to be a global content provider and you're gonna have to create content that, you know, suits every demographic and every range of incomes, it's 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 a supermarket style game. Yeah. And th- and that's where you can sit there and say, well, now if at $15 a month, there's people who are now like, you know what? There's not much on there. I'm going to cancel it. Then that tells you that, that that person, if they're willing to stomach, like right now, Disney plus just finished Loki. I'm not going to watch old Disney shows right now. And I'm not like, I haven't hit the, like the boredom point when I've watched enough of them enough times to go watch like MCU movies for the, for, for multiple for not even multiple, like the 10th time each, right? So at least for some of them. So when you think about what what can get stale, like Disney can't keep up the volume on these names at the level that they're running, right? Without reaching some sort of like, all right, I think I've had enough of this for a little bit. Like they they, they are definitely benefiting from a period of 18 months where, their characters were essentially shut out since Endgame, which actually kind of worked in their favor. So they brought you the film guys in episodic TV format with the launch of Disney Plus. Right after the only show they really had was Mandalorian, and like you're getting, you know, here and there on, on some of their movie releases. So I think if you're going to look at this, this is not really more of a Netflix question. It's more of like, what does this industry look like? Like if you actually believe. As some people have criticized Netflix here, that like they're kind of at a, at a point where any incremental pricing in the United States is going to create more churn. Then, like, why am I investing in anything else in the space? Because Netflix is already spreading that content over the largest potential audience. Then you generally have to believe everybody else is more focused. And as you were pointing out, everybody else isn't like the reason everyone else has dived into this is like, hey, we're going to get a higher multiple. We're going to get a Netflix multiple. Netflix is not getting a Netflix multiple. You know? So if you're chasing the Netflix dream where Netflix is topped out here, then like what's Disney Plus the subscribers top out at? That kind of goes back to where we started. Like, what do you think the addressable market is? And what do you think the market will bear? I mean, cable got more and more and more expensive over 20 years. I mean, like, that's the, you know, that was really essentially a given. But like, if you're looking at Netflix's financials today, can it get to an HBO EBITDA margin or EBIT margin? If you want to really, we're talking about media companies. Are you going to get to that? Which is like essentially double from here. I mean, in theory, you should be able to achieve the same margins that the cable companies were able to get to with the wholesale model and sharing profitability essentially with the distributors. Right. And with like a regional kind of tie down, that's where you kind of, that's where you get into this whole conversation of like, was the wholesale and licensing and whatever that you're doing globally and your content was finding homes that were suited to audiences in those markets. Is that more efficient than I'm going to get, I'm going to go DTC and I'm going to have to spend on the type of content somebody wants to watch in Germany at the same time of providing something for the eight-year-old kids who, are, who can watch YouTube 
and provided something for the HBO guys and something for the, you know, Tiger King crowd, right? And something for the reality junkies who are watching this on Discovery. That's where you get into like the local partners license. Like if you have a, if you, if you went through BBC in London or whoever, you know, uh, Showtime Arabia as a partner and for Game of Thrones, right? And they license your content. Your content had an audience and so-and-so market and you made money on it in that way. Now it's like, all right, like, do, am I going to invest in a bunch of Middle Eastern shows? Am I going to invest in most of this? Or is it just, is it one size fits all with my distribution? Turns out it's not. Local affiliates were providing you something because they have a content slate that includes a mix of localized content. And then they were plugging you in there for certain things where they, where they were able to see demand. You now, if like you're standalone, you have to replace, you know, whatever it was that they were doing in sports news, local entertainment that was regionalized to get that audience. Or you essentially have to convert everybody into one global audience consuming the same content. And as, as we've said, as we know, that's not the case. So that's kind of where you, you look at this today and you say, I mean, we were having this conversation on spaces with someone who was just like, look, the Disney brand, like the, the parks are big, but like from a TV standpoint and some of these markets, like, no, it's, it's not the same. Like Netflix is in a whole nother world as a brand, you know, in Australia versus like a Disney. Because they've been, they've been tailoring the content to the local market. I wonder if the what we have in this quarter is that sort of and it wasn't like Netflix Netflix sold off I think four and a half percent. So it's not drastic and it's still in that sort of low five hundreds, low to mid five hundreds share range that it's been in since basically the Q four call that we talked about. I wonder if this is where the market's like, okay, yes, COVID is really a thing as far as the COVID effect that we've been talking about for so long. Newman, you mentioned, he highlighted that we're averaging 20, if we hit our number for Q3, then we're averaging 27 million subscribers a year the last two years, which is a good steady pace, just different cadence. And so I wonder if that's where the story then shifts again back to sort of these dynamics you talk about and i want you know that what i wonder with the 30 rock I, and i don't know maybe i'm not as clear on this but if comcast is not going to hold on to that for peacock i haven't heard a lot about peacock being a success it seems like that's pretty you mentioned you just watched it for the first time dr death is great i seriously recommend watching that okay so i'll, I'll look for that in the states but the like you got to be thinking that the tiny players have to be not long for this world as independent players up through, I would say, Viacom. And then after that, how much longer we've, we talk about it a lot. Apple TV, I think Apple seems to be doing reasonably well with that. I mean, we're all Ted Lasso fans here and they've had, I've, I actually find a decent amount of content on Apple, but I don't know. But I, I haven't have... watched it since the last Ted Lasso. I watched the that Tehran show briefly. I didn't even I think I don't I didn't even finish maybe the last episode or two. But 
And I never got into uh, their big show. The morning show. Yeah, the morning show with Aniston and Corel and Well, I mean it's what we won't digress too far. Physical, my wife likes that's a that's sort of an reminds me of and I don't watch <laughs> most of these shows, but it reminds me of Amazon, I think, had one that was set in the eighties in like a country club. It reminds oh, that me that was my favorite show we we're talking about. Which is that the <laughs> in the I feel like red was in the title. Anyway, so I like Apple's got its little thing, but like it's not looking like it's world domination. Red Oaks, Red Oaks. There you go. Thank you. Yeah. So this re- physical, from Red what Oaks I great. hear of it, reminds me a little bit of Red Oaks. I maybe I, I haven't really watched either. Oh, now I have to watch that because I want more content like Red Oaks. I think you. I mean, you know, it's. I. I it sounds like the sh- sort of show you would like, but I. I I've watched three. Pro- I mean, I, I'd say like if you were to. to Ask me about Prime that like what comes off with. I mean, I definitely watched more shows, but there's Red Oaks, The Man in the High Castle, and The Boys. See, Prime for me is where a lot of those US shows get syndicated abroad since I'm abroad. And so I get The Office on there, I get Seinfeld on there, I get those sorts. I can't find Parks and Rec anywhere, but like Prime I use for that, or like I want to watch rewatch The Big Lebowski or something like they've got a yeah, decent. So Netflix was essentially doing that as well. So like that's kind of become a battle for them in other markets, right? So in Southeast Asia and Mina, like that's where everything is being distributed in in those shows. Yeah, Breaking Bad, Seinfeld, all the Mad Marvel Man. stuff, everything like that was it's all on Netflix and international. Yeah. So anyway, it'll be interesting to see, like, I think, yeah, I think to the point of everybody kind of accelerated, it's unclear whether that pressure is actually affecting Netflix or not. I think Netflix is probably still the the starting point for people to build out their streaming library. But um, yeah, I so think- that's the interesting thing. I mean, like, I, I'm generally of the view, I think I did the math, like, it's, you're looking at seven eight percent to get to just about twenty dollars in arpu for the u.s and i mean europe is at like 11 right now so i i'm i look at it and say u.s and, and europe should be paying twenty dollars for netflix content i mean everybody in this space ultimately has to make money and the way it's been viewed in the let's call them the monopolies and the hyperscale tech it's still it's it's a cost tied to a related business, but that's that can only go so far if it's not driving you know the I- incremental revenue. Now, in the case of Netflix, like their whole business is media, right? Which is when you go back to the gaming and uh, whether they do sports or anything else, and it's that's their model. Their model is just completely entertainment focused, right? And they've done it from from this hyper-focused subscription video, like, like they haven't deviated yet. They've experimented at least with the, with the reality TV they have to, but on the binging, I mean, like Ted Lasso, for example, I'm, I'm almost thinking about not watching it episode by episode because you kind of just, like it's, it's become a struggle with, 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 with this dynamic. Like Loki kind of left me feeling that like I wasn't really getting much out of it, like six episodes. It was a, it was a good show, but like, those are two of them where you're like, come on, like nothing really happened this week. And, you know, like, wish you just stuck the damn thing all together. 
Ted Lasso uh, first episode was a little slow. They said the show creator said they thought they were releasing three to start before, like they did last season. They were a little surprised they didn't. Yeah. So I would say that's because like, so w- when we were discussing this whole Netflix engagement on Twitter, like I pointed out, I was like, guys, I, I also have Hulu and Prime video and Apple TV and all these other things where they don't watch anything. And I mean, I did watch some shows on, on Netflix in this window, despite the fact that you had multiple movie releases, some of them really shitty, but multiple movie releases that went through DTC services as well, on top of good content from HBO and, uh, and Disney releasing three MCU TV shows in this window. So when you think about that, like it's, it's like Apple, I can see maybe they're thinking that like they need you there engaged. So they're, they're going to milk la- every episode of Lasso as much as they can in the hopes that now like someone like you gets me to watch something like physical. And then all of a sudden I'm watching two or three shows on that service and like where it is in the bundle relative to Netflix becomes somewhat, you know, price pressure. And value prop, you know, from a consumer standpoint, rewarding. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I, here's what I will have to say about this. Like, if, if you're looking at this space right now, where this stock trades and, and where things are trading, uh, if you genuinely believe that there's a, a few hundred million more uh, potential subscribers for the DTC model, and if you're remotely interested in investing in scripted media, then like you, you kind of have to own this thing here. It's kind of a no-brainer, at least from a relative value standpoint. And if you actually believe, like, if Disney prints a number in this vicinity of like plus a million, million and a half to flat for domestic U.S then like you can't sit here and criticize Netflix because it's a higher ARPU. It's way more penetrated and it seems like everybody has hit, will have hit like, let's call it a streaming hangover because of COVID. Right. And seasonality. And once you get to the winter and it gets cold and if these winters continue to be, you know, more extreme dynamics. And once you get past that, let's COVID, I need to be out and about psychology. These things all seasonally work better in their favor. So it, it's it, where the stock trades compare. Look, I mean, like take a Roku, right? I mean, it's the other extreme. Again, it's a content business. How you want to monetize is a different game altogether, but I actually kind of like the Netflix model over the long haul. I mean, anybody traditionally would pay premium versus ad split share, right? Where you don't control the content and where it's potentially you could find yourself in a situation where like your neutrality slash direct competition becomes an issue. That that company is trading now at a third of Netflix's enterprise value. 
Right. With a lot less than a third of Netflix revenue. I mean, let's call it, you know, 5%. 1.2 billion in platform revenue last year, really gross 50% this year, 1.8, you know, 1.9, call it two even, you know, at 2 billion, it's 6%. And again, you have to look at it from the standpoint of where the ecosystem is going. If they're going to be spending more on content and they're invariably finding themselves as a content player, their costs are going in the direction of a Netflix. The flip side is if that business is so damn good, then every like you, it won't be long before Netflix takes their app and says, you know, if you have content, you can license our technology to deliver it. And we want to be an ad supported platform. Well, and I, I think what you're getting at too, is just that Netflix is sort of representing something pretty close to what the promised land is. And you can argue that people will pay for growth if the market does love growth. But if all your growth is going to get you, it's still going to, you know, hit an asymptote, hit a limit around if whatever, you know, again, to your point, either Netflix is already at the limit and then fine, but then like there's not much that you think that other companies can do better with one caveat I'll get to, or you think that there's still growth left for Netflix, in which case they're closer to that promised land. And so then it's more attractive. I think the caveat is if you're Disney, especially, I don't think, I think now that HBO, that Warner is merging with Discovery, that story kind of isn't there anymore. Your argument with Disney is that, look, it's one line of their business. You've got the parks you got everything else but in that case you're not really owning it for disney for disney plus you're owning it for other reasons and you know we can reopen that some other time but that's, I mean, that's where you get into the whole idea of a media company right so the idea with with netflix is that you have two two 210 million global subs and if you make a show that's popular in the u.s market that show's cost for the u.s market is amortized over a global audience. The counterpoint here is, well, this was always the name of the game in media and your show Game of Thrones, you know, is popular here, here and here. And you, you had a distribution model before that involved just upfront licensing dollars from local providers who have an audience to now where it's like, actually, they have no interest in that show there. So like, yes, you can amortize it over a small amount of your subs globally who may, may tune in, but it turns out you need to have a local show that's popular and that's tailored to the local market in almost every market you operate to drive that consumer value. And that's where you get back to this whole, that's why you had like, you have, you have local, local content players in all kinds of markets because content does get tailored towards towards certain taste. So everybody doesn't speak the same language globally and every piece of content like may not resonate with, with, with each, with each person on earth. So the idea of, Hey, the incremental cost from a distribution standpoint 
you know, I'll reduce it and you get this benefit. Well, you could say that HBO had a model that was earning whatever it was in these markets from licensing standpoint or Disney with its Disney channel and licensing whatever it was making in those markets. And that no matter what you do, you're not going to beat that model. Like you're going to end up at the same place. So DTC, like the middlemen were adding a decent amount of value that people were underappreciating and that those costs that you have to incur, you know, may not necessarily outperform the free cash flow that was just, you know, plopping right to your bottom line with licensing. Yeah, it's interesting. The value is almost, I don't want to say in getting around regulatory, but it's almost in that, like you said, the, the, the ability to not have to deal with the localization factor is like even more than the distribution itself is no small thing, especially in a global environment. But hey, you may have a new audience, which you change, but the existing audience is not tipping over. Right. All right. I think we should switch over to Twitter. I think we've got Netflix pretty well covered. So Twitter... You thought that it was a similar quarter, which I, my sense was that the consensus around it was not the same sort of tone as the consensus around Netflix. What did you think was similar about Twitter's quarter? No, I was just saying that they both lost subscribers in North America. Well, sorry, Twitter lost monetizable daily active users, <laughs> not a leg for like, and Netflix lost subscribers. Both had a, a key a key metric that was negative versus let's call it operational financial performance very positive. But now in in Twitter's case, I mean Twitter had a, had a great quarter. I mean advertising growth up to over eighty percent. Top line, I think what was it seventy one percent? Seventy four. Yeah, seventy four percent. They even beat you know where I thought they would come in. It's got momentum. The back half's going to be really good from a revenue standpoint. I mean, uh, the conversations I've had with people in, in the advertising space are anecdotally very strong with respect to Twitter. And with the way this works, like they are taking some market share from where they were before. The one thing that I think for me with with respect to Twitter this quarter, they talked about the MDAU drop within the context of the last three years seasonality. And that's correct. What I don't like where I have an issue with it is I feel like there's all these tailwinds, you know, and like, I just want like, an, I like, I wanted more of an explanation with, with respect to uh, what do you mean by the tailwinds? I'm saying like with the freaking crypto, uh, you know, all these people trading the, the COVID market would, that got that onboarded people in retail as well as, uh, I mean, everything from meme stock to uh, crypto games, to crypto trading, to retail trading mania, to IPO mania, to SPAC mania, all these things. Like these are, these are secular tailwinds for Twitter and the concept of FinTwit once you're in it. So when podcasting, promoting things like live audio uh, spaces, et cetera, and then like they just talk about like this is like a typical seasonality for us for the last three years. So that's where I like that that bugged me a little bit. Like I I I would like more color there. 
But other than that, I mean, the stock where it trades, and I mean, I don't know if you saw on Friday, but like Facebook was up more than it. I mean, Roku was up 12%. Trade Desk was up like 10. It was like mania. Snapchat obviously was up like 25% or something, 23. Just to, just to remind you, going back to my Snapchat short in 2019, at least I'm not short that name, but still the, like you essentially, like I look back, I mean, it's Twitter is still my largest position, but like I look back and it's, it's like, uh, this is really frustrating because I swapped a lot of Facebook for Twitter and really Facebook performance since we discussed this and since we discussed the, the Elliot, I mean, I think that was one of our first podcasts. It was pretty early on. It was last, it was last March, I think, right? Yeah. When they did the deal. Yeah. And we were talking about shorting Twitter and being long Facebook because you were buying Facebook at that time at what, four or five times sales with their immense profitability and growing faster than Twitter. And I mean, you fast forward a little bit over a year and you have the same performance. I mean, you actually probably have slightly better now on Facebook. And of course, blown out of the water with Pinterest and Snapchat. I mean, Pinterest, I mean, that's a whole nother story, but Snapchat, what? It's a 10X, roughly speaking. So So what I wanted to ask you with Snap, obviously that sort of turned a lot of heads in terms of, yeah, that's great Twitter, but look at what Snap's doing. Snap is now, I think, twice more than twice the size of Twitter. You said that you think Twitter's taking market share. Like what it just seems when you look at the whole sector and the market reaction, it just seems like online advertising is just on a roll and just correct. Without question. And that's so who are they taking market share from? So I'm not saying that they're taking market share in the sense of Facebook, Snapchat, whatever. I'm saying that from like a dollar spend, particularly on brand, they're more in the mix now. And it's like it's ticked up, not crazy, because you had to immediately reinvest in the dominant channels, which largely have been Facebook and Google. But I'd say that for the rest of them, like they took market share from traditional print, media, et cetera, right? But as far as the pie, but in Twitter's case, I expect them to be more competitive per dollar with the Facebook and Googles of the world going forward based on what I'm hearing from advertisers. Like it hasn't ramped, like they're all way happier with the performance they're getting out of it. And they all anticipate spending more money there. Now, knee jerk, because of the way the market has moved in the last nine months. Yeah, I'd say it's been like a secular. That's why I kind of like the outlook for Twitter from a revenue standpoint for the next six months as a continued outperformer compared to the peer group. I mean, if you want to put it in perspective, I mean, where like Snapchat grew what this quarter? 116, 116%. So it's 116 off a smaller base versus advertising wise for Twitter, 82? 87. 87. So there you go. So 87%. Like that's not considering the multiple differential. It's a reminder of how discounted the stock is, relatively speaking. 
By the way, there's a strong argument to buy this name, uh, you know, today, if you're not in it, just based on the performance and the fact that it, it, it was a name that I feel like a, a lot of people wanted to trade the, the quarter. And that's just not been a good thing, right, into Friday. And it's done, like, it's consistently done its work as a stock. And I don't know why, but whatever you want to call into reading into it, outside of that earning day. In fact, the earning day has in aggregate been a major headwind to performance. So there's nothing in that quarter. I mean, 3% on that beat is major underperformance compared to everybody else. But I mean, it's better than the fact that the, what happened uh, in October when it, when it dropped like 25% on like a similar beat on the top line. And like just a slightly worse MDAU. I mean, the funny thing is that quarter, the MDAU in North America was fucking gangbusters. <laughs> Relatively speaking. Well, and Twitter had a rough even Q1 this year, right? That's where the. Yeah, but that was where like, that was actually more on the muted guidance, which they now said, you know, like they really underestimated brand. Look, it's a conservative management team. There's no getting around that. They're just not very financially promotional. But I mean, the back half of the year for them look like this is they're going to do like 5.1 billion or so, maybe more. So let's like I would model this right now is going to grow just about 40%. When I wrote up that two pager at the end of the year with respect to like a, a bullet point thesis, I got shit saying that they would grow. 40% in Q2. <laughs> so when you think about where the market has come, like they grew double that in Q2. I mean, nearly double that. I mean, from an advertising standpoint, they grew double. I mean, they had a ridiculously easy comps, but I mean, so did everybody, right? So the market definitely expanded way faster than anybody expected at the start of January. That's for sure. And there's still, essentially, there's still relative catch up to be done when you look at especially Snap and even Facebook, which will report this week. Yeah. So that's the interesting thing going forward. Are you going to get rewarded in Twitter having been patient here and get notable outperformance when the ad market isn't a gust of, gust of wind behind you? I'm not saying it has, it turns into a headwind, but you you are going to have macro comps in the overall ad space that incrementally become more challenging for the next three quarters. So you're, you're coming off of, you know, let's call it the best nine months ever. Yeah, I mean, this, this, the rate of growth at these companies scale, even, you know, is, is impressive. For sure. And hard. Yeah, to- so like that's the thing. So there's this COVID dynamic here, right? Like right now, everybody is like in that exact focus. The rate of growth at this scale is impressive. But there's a reason you're so impressed by it because is because of the scale and because relative to GDP growth and like how the economy grows and all these other things, like you know it's not sustainable. So that rate of growth is going to step function down. And I mean, you can look at how these things are modeled right now. There's a wide range of them. But 
the general consensus is they step function down to where they were at right before COVID. Twitter specifically. Yeah. Not Twitter specifically. No, Twitter is expected to outperform because I mean, Twitter is giving you guidance of 300 MAUs, MDAUs by the end of 2023. So that's like two and a half years, 50% from here. Right. Well, and they're also, they still have that seven and a half billion revenue target for that year, which would be. I mean, dude, you can't buy this stock today if you don't think that they're close to double their revenue in three and a half years. So you're, you're expecting them to grow at close to 30%. And what like the, I mean, they have tailwinds into the back half of this year and probably in the beginning of next year, but then like you, you really need to see that like the cadence on the user base to have the confidence that like, it's going to be meaningful beyond then. Because that's where you get into this whole conversation of like, what, what do, what's like the sector norm multiple look like in, in, in online advertising in in 12 months, because it's been expanding like no tomorrow for the last nine. The, the, maybe I'm digressing here, but the other thing I always, I, I wonder with Twitter is, they're got you know they're so forty percent growth let's say this year or higher, they're they're guiding for thirty percent opex growth. I just wonder they're spending. I get that they're investing. I get they're rolling out a lot of new products. I get that they're getting their story straighter, which is I think something they've been lacking, where the story isn't as clear as Pinterest or Snap or Facebook, but. I do wonder, like, at what point do they really turn the corner where it's not just a delta of five to ten percent between that revenue growth rate and that opex, but that they're really like we've achieved scale. And I think you've made the point in the past that Facebook spoiled us as far as what it takes to really scale an advertising business online. But I'm that's something I, I don't know. If, I don't think they've really guided for that in the 2023 growth plan. I'm just curious if you you like worry about that at all or think about that or if it's they're making enough like the revenue growth is just gonna lead the way. Well, I mean, there was somebody who mentioned I think it was DK or I don't know who who nicked them on stock based compensation being so high and Snapchat was was double that. Right. Yeah. Snaps. Snaps probably the up. They're still. And then like you got half of Twitter being like, well, that's amazing because like that's how you incentivize creativity. And the other half, which is like, this is egregious. I mean, the bottom line is, is you you have to offset to dilution. And that is part of the headwind as an investor when stock comp is that hot. I mean, you want the most egregious example in Vitae. And that's not one where so much so the stock comp, that's like they've had to raise so much money because they're incinerating it. But stock comp has played a fact there. But either way, you're issuing a ton of shares. And whether you're issuing a ton of shares to pay your employees or to raise capital because you're burning too much cash, in either case, it's a major headwind if you're buying the stock. 
Now, so far for Snap, that has not proved to be a problem. They can do no wrong. But I mean, you've seen how these things like they turn on a dime, right? Like the way the, the way the market treats you. I mean, so what you're paying for Twitter here compared to everything else is, in my opinion, a pretty good deal. If not the best deal in the space now. But considering where we've been at for, you know, since last summer, it's almost as if it's just been like a, a one-to-one payout on the sector. So you are better off in the least risky name. And you are actually really better off in Google, to tell you the truth, because that's really proven to be the most obvious as far as multiple expansion and expense, expense beneficiary, like, and, you know, flowing to the bottom line for operating income growth, which people have had criticized them for on the past, even though they are Google and they've generally been a beast. Twitter, yeah, you're, you're not there yet. I mean, like you're buying Twitter right now because you most likely think it does better than a high 20s to 30% top line growth in the next three years. Like you actually have to be thinking that maybe it's 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 closer to thirty five percent CAGR. Yeah, which I think a lot of people, a lot of bulls believe. I think a lot of bulls like the the mindset coming out of the management team, the sort of narrative, the the comeback story, and and a lot of the bulls are on Twitter, so there's a little bit of self fulfilling nature there but uh yeah i mean everything looks good they're going to have a strong finish to this year from a revenue standpoint without question are they going to have a strong finish to this year from a user growth standpoint is a good question and that's probably going to swing you in the stock price whether it's trading at at a hundred dollars or somewhere around where it is today. You know, let's call it somewhere between 60 and 70. Because I am expecting a much more challenging uh, macro environment in the ad space for the back half of the year. But that's, that's actually probably like, we don't want to say that. Say not the same momentum, just put it that way. <laughs> it's... <laughs> Challenging, yeah. it assumes well, uh, people will think that you're talking about a receding or a recession. I'm just saying that the, the, like you can be flat and flat from what you've had, relatively speaking, on a sequential basis for three straight quarters is, is a bit of a, uh, a Debbie Downer. Well, it's worth remembering, I think last Q3 was... The first one where Twitter almost hit a billion, I think, in revenue. I think that was the big milestone. And so that 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 Q3 was they were at 936, which was their second highest quarter ever. And so then they, you know, that's where the even though this stock traded off that day, that was sort of where the momentum picked up. And so, yeah, now they start to lap that. And so, yeah, we'll see where they where they hit from here, but uh I mean they should come in notably larger in the back half of the year, right? So you did 1.2 billion, 
Last quarter was what? 1.04. You've done in the front half of the year 2.25 billion, right? Yeah. The back half of the year is looking like what the guide is what? 1.3 for next quarter? Yeah, 1.2 to 1.3. Yeah. 2.2 to 1.3. Yeah, so it's like you're going to get, you know, they'll probably guide you for 1.6 for Q4. Yeah, so it comes at like around 5.1. Which does seem to consensus I was looking at is 5.08 right now. So Okay, there you go. So, yeah. So I really, they adjusted that pretty quickly. Yeah. It's like literally 20% shift. Yeah. So that's the thing, right? Like the first half of the year, I mean, the bottom line is the streets is the street is not supposed to be uh, completely uh, incompetent. Right. So the first half of the year has generally improved and I don't think it's been lowballed guidance, put it that way. And the big guys don't guide. So, I mean, everybody's numbers were too low. COVID is, is what it is. Like price, prices are moving way faster and more volatile than, than anybody has been able to model anything. That's the nature of this environment. If you could model anything in this environment, you wouldn't have shortages. So if you want to just sum it up, when you have a global economy that's experiencing shortages in almost every sector and price surges in sectors that people I mean, they attribute it as a bull market, but really this whole dynamic is just, it's, it's a combination of fiscal policy, monetary policy, and just overall ability to plan that is in such an outlier of where you typically are for a given year for a global economy that it's introduced unprecedented volatility. Getting to the point where that unprecedented volatility turns into some sort of predictability and let's call it more clear visibility. In this case, more clear visibility is going to be like, you know, understanding that things aren't moving up as fast anymore. Usually more clear visibility is attributed to like, hey, we're not sure where the bottom is on something. In this case, it's going to be like, all right, yeah, we kind of have a sense of uh, where supply meets demand again or balances out. And I mean, that's kind of, it's almost ironic, but that's where you get into this whole idea of like the back half of the year is going to be less violent as far as you know that that tailwind that you've had in the ad space and i don't really know i mean we like we can save this for for another for another chat because i think it's it's much more macro macro oriented for for everything but i guess my measuring stick for twitter going from here is that like i kind of expect them to outgrow the sector to be clear and i think that for them Q3, Q4, because the advertisers are just kind of starting to step up how they're spending on Twitter. I'm not, I'm less worried about the the macro playing into it. And, and we're probably going to get a good sense of this, by the way, this week. I mean, you had a good step up in the in the big names as a response to Snapchat and and and, and Twitter's earnings. Because last quarter it was like, well, I mean, Twitter did this, and here's. Here's how well, uh, I mean, because they reported at the end, it was like kind of a Debbie Downer compared to the All-Stars. So people have taken what Snapchat's cue and extrapolated that into a, a monster quarter for everybody else. 
we knew this was going to be a monster quarter in general. I mean, it's the easiest comp year over year, and you had really good momentum out of out of Q1, and the economy is uh, is coming out of its slumber. Well, I don't really call it a slumber, but let's call it the uh, the part of the economy was opening up as the as that that had been shut down, and you're starting to see the effects of that without a notable decline yet in 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 the COVID beneficiary part of the economy. So I think that's where you kind of look at it with Twitter. Like, I mean, I, I, to a degree, Twitter's conference call kind of captures a decent amount of that, right? They're like softer news cycle, but, you know, brand spend and everything was what came out, came back in March. And then like, it was way stronger as it continued than, than we'd expected. So with their products improving and with, with the cadence that they're moving at, I mean, we saw, by the way, like we didn't get into the product stuff, but like you got super follows coming. You've got tweaking the timeline. They're they're retiring fleets, which they weren't happy with how that did. You know, space is still is a work in progress as far as like technical issues here and there. But I mean, I feel like most people have just pretty much forgotten about Clubhouse. I mean, I haven't even opened the app in ages. So I think in some areas, Twitter has proven that it's one. I'd like to see them get better on the on the creator side of things. And I think there's challenges there with, you know, how do they distribute money with the, with the Apple ecosystem, but we know that these things are coming as, as added upside. Yeah. And just to, I, if I'm reading it right, I think estimates went up something like six plus percent after the quarter. And that wasn't it accounted to just them beating in Q2. So yeah, the, the market's waking up. The street's waking up. Yeah, it's an interesting setup for Twitter going forward. And yeah, obviously the product momentum. I'm a little bit sad about fleets. I was a relatively big fleets user, but <laughs> I never did one fleet. <sighs> you, and, you and I are on the other end of the spectrum. I mean, to me, it was it's a discovery gateway into spaces, which is what That's it's going to become. It. Like, yeah, my eyes trained to look at it, and I see what spaces are open, and that was it. That was what. <laughs> Yeah, I I did notice that you never looked at my fleets, and I'm a little I'm gonna I'm gonna blame. You're sad. I'm a little bit sad. I'm a little bit a little bit hurt. I, I I will check them out before it's gone. I mean, they're still here. Oh, I've gotta I've gotta start fleeting some more. So, <laughs> but all right, good stuff. I think we can wrap there. We've got a couple. We'll be playing a couple more episodes to record soon. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, in in summary, don't in both both of these names should be in your portfolio. If uh, if you're a, a long-term investor here, I think that I think that the macro situation, if you're macro agnostic, these are both. I mean, in Netflix's case, being discounted to almost everything. Okay, so like that's where you get into like, hey, I mean, like you can criticize, but like it's seven times sales, bro. I mean, there's 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 an entire universe trading above that, so. If you actually believe that there's a future in the industry and that this is one of the better management teams ever, there you go. And in Twitter's case, I mean, we're still like, what, what are we at 10 times this year on EV to sales? So yeah, it's probably right. Like that's pretty meaningful upside potential if you're, if you're buying into the narrative. And I, I like the near-term setup for Twitter relative to the peer group going into the back half of the year. So like if you actually are a little bit concerned about momentum 
and you want relative performance, I think you're going to outperform here for the next six months. And if you're looking at the stock and be like, well, it didn't go up that much on, on Friday, like you should view that as an opportunity because it's historically been when you, you should buy it. Like this thing has, has done way better in the two weeks after earnings than it does into earnings. Yeah. It's an interesting. I mean, literally for like the last four years dynamic. Yeah. I don't like looking at these like price things as like just total signal, but you can't deny under COVID that there's like positioning and there's a lot of people who are pitching this as like, Hey, buy it into the quarter. They're going to crush. Uh, they moved the, not, they moved the uh, date up. And by the way, I think that was a good move in their case, but everything that they did, you know, had people thinking that, you know, them going first big beat. And it was a big beat. <laughs> there's not much else to say. They definitely did better than they were expecting to do. So like that part, I mean, that's the, the, the interesting thing about the idea of a big beat is like, you're kind of catching the psychology of like, you're getting the, not the psychology, the, the random probability of the macro, which can't be forecasted. Right. But everybody's still playing for, playing for those sorts of beats. All right. Good stuff, Akram. Any last, you kind of hit your no. last thoughts there, so. See how these, I'm sure we will continue to talk these two names over the course of the year. So leave it there. It's an endless treadmill. Thank you for listening to The Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful, as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Short Man Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you for listening, and see you next week.